Hey there, it's Jason. Welcome to the Jason Wright Show, where the mission is very simple. It is to improve always in all ways. Look, I am on a mission to create the absolute best version of myself. And through the Jason Wright Show, I let you know everything I'm doing to make that happen. I interview incredible, remarkable, brilliant individuals from all different walks of life. And I also try to bring you tools, tactics, and protocols that will help you in your own personal mission to improve always in all ways. Now, let's get started. Julie Perkins joining us all the way from London. Good morning here. Good evening there. How are you, Julie? Uh, Good morning, Jason. I'm very, very well. Thank you. Thanks for asking. And it's great to be here. Really good to be a part of it. Well, I'm honored to have you. And we're going to be talking about something that is one of my favorite subjects, which is entrepreneurship. And it's not so much just because I'm a business junkie. In fact, the, the reason why I like talking about entrepreneurship so much is because at least in those early days when you're when you're starting up, there's so much passion involved. You, we, we talk more about things like you and I were discussing offline, purpose, mission. And one of the things that I've gathered from your company, and I want you to share uh, your background and what, what your organization is doing, is you help sustain, and from my understanding, you are able to help sustain that early stage passion purpose that most every little fledgling business is just starting out with a dream and an idea to sustain that once the growth begins, once the bureaucracy has to necessarily take place and you you try to help organizations not lose that passion. So before I go any further, you give me in your terms, who is Julie Perkins and what are you doing? Well, uh, thank you for the introduction. Actually, you put it actually even clearer than myself. And yeah, that's exactly what we do. I, I've come from this incredible corporate life and um, I help grow the family business out in the Netherlands and uh, a little bit throughout Northern Europe. And this experience was incredible. And I thought to myself, as I came across more and more women entrepreneurs, I thought, how can I support them? How can I take what I have learned and pass it on to help that journey for women entrepreneurs? Now, there is some amazing startup companies, incubators, whatever you want to put it. But the challenge sometimes that I was hearing more about is what happens when the passion has gone? And I think that's hard to believe when you first start a business because you love it and nobody loves it as much as you. For sure. But the challenge is, is how long can that passion last? And how do you keep the love of your business once that period has gone? And the more I was hearing these great ideas set up by women entrepreneurs who'd started it with passion and then come to sort of think about, do I still love what I do? Uh, You know, getting frustrated or stuck. with where they're at and also getting upset with themselves because what, what they once loved, they're thinking, why have I fallen out of love? So, so passionate about, and you know, the great thing about when you see an opportunity to support is when the actual answer to them is easy saying, it's not you, you still love what you do. It's that you're at the moment fighting with the growth of your business. Um, and, you know, companies grow in a series of waves and I sort of reassure them as, you know, you're unique, your business is unique, but the way companies grow in early stage is not, and you're just trying to climb onto a new wave, holding on to the wave that you've currently been on and your business is basically fighting you. Uh, and, um. And that's the joy, because when someone finds out they're not the only person in the problem, there's um, this great sort of comradeship to shared adversity. <laughs> I find, like, oh, thank goodness, it's not just me. Right. And, and that's the start, really. That's the beginning of, uh, of, of where I pick up with Wise Minds. 
it's amazing that we're having this conversation because you're just describing, and you and I spoke a little bit offline about this, that, that describes my wife to a T. So Jimelyn, she basically, there was a hot tots, which around here in, in where we live in Tyler, Texas is a local institution at this point, thanks to her blood, sweat, and tears and unbelievable hard work. She started, she purchased this little business that was about to go away from another individual, 1200 square feet, 14 years ago and has built it into something that has become a staple of this local economy and the, and the retail scene here. And Julie, we have been through that in the last five years where she's really seen what is normally a, a wonderful thing for a business, which is growth. I mean, she has seen like, even in the worst of times, I mean, even through the COVID epidemic or a pandemic and everything, she saw growth. And all of a sudden, it's not that the growth itself has caused the strain on her. And I've had to have those pep talks with her to remind her of why you love this. But it's then all of a sudden when the business grows, just like you described, then the necessary controls and some of the things that are just more, not, not what you would think of with this, is what we're passionate about. Well, let's just go for it. Let's charge that hill. It's not as fun. It's not as exciting. A PL is not fun to manage. Managing, <laughs> yeah, that's nice fun. So, so, one of the th questions I have for you, and then I want to talk about too, because I know that you focus primarily on female entrepreneurs and, and as a male entrepreneur, I think one of the things that your business does, and a lot of people don't want to talk about this, you know, a lot of guys, like when I, when I first started looking at your background, I'll be honest with you, I kind of bristled. I'm like, wait a minute, we're all entrepreneurs. No, there is a difference. And there's a proof. There's a reason why my first venture that I started that it's not that I sold it. I sold it quickly, you know, in a little over a decade in business, but I saw it while, but Jimlin is pushing on. She still has, and I believe it is the difference in the way we look at businesses and, and how we kind of measure it. So I love the fact that you have been able to understand that to help female entrepreneurs push forward. How do you, and, and start where you want, but if you've got somebody like a Jimlin as a, as a case study, 14 years in the business, and now the business is growing. And we're going into the holiday season. So starting this weekend, we will be open seven days a week. Jimlin will be there seven days a week. She will, as we get closer to Christmas, the earliest she will be home is probably midnight, sometimes three in the morning and back at that store at 5 a.m. I will be there with her every Saturday and Sunday until Christmas Eve. Whenever the, you, as the, that entrepreneur, like when Jimlin hits that wall, and says, why am I doing this, Julie? What do you say? Make yourself redundant. I mean, as dramatic as that sounds, of course, it's, it's not as easy as that. Um, and I'm sort of smiling with um, connection to, to that story because that's how I discovered for myself the journey. You know, I was growing... Um, the uh, Specsavers out in the Netherlands, and I found myself sitting out uh, with those long days, sat in the back garden at 3 a.m., you know, hands to the air, what more can I do? And, you know, the story, to cut it short, was one about when someone said to me, do you still love what you do and do what you love? And, you know, when at the moment they asked me that, I just thought, I don't think this is a moment for, you know, having a joint hug. I was quite frustrated, you know, but but actually, the value of that question is extremely important for an entrepreneur because it's very hard to ask yourself that question when you have built that business from scratch or from that. It's, you're very attached and you can deny a lot. You can deny your own happiness very, very quickly because you've done the blood, sweat and tears. It's all part of it. So when I joke about the redundancy, what I'm sort of saying is that time in the example I've given, I look upon taking myself out of the business and truly asking the question. And it wasn't about leaving the business. It was about asking myself, am I in the best position I possibly can be as the founder to be growing the business in the direction that it wants? And if no, what does that look like? And if it looks like that, what do I need? And 
this redundancy pattern is incredibly important for founders. And of course, your wife's been going for 14 years and congratulations, especially with the growth during COVID. I'm like, you know, there were some amazing stories uh, from that pandemic for sure. And it sounds like that was one of them. Um, You know, when you are even four or five years and you're feeling that frustration where things don't feel smooth, you know, if you look at the growth wave, you're trying to get onto a new one. And very simply, I actually had an entrepreneur today and I was explaining this to her and and I was going on about purpose and values and positioning. And she said, yeah, but I've got everyday stuff. And this is what generates that I have time for this philosophical moments. And I said, look like this. Look at Mount Everest, four camps and a summit. And you're trying to get to the summit. And you've started at base camp and you've done an amazing job. Your passion has taken you to camp one, camp two, camp three, up the ice wall, you know, with your comrades and everything like this. And you're sat now camp four. And you're trying to climb to the summit with the same pack that took you through the ice wall, the same tools, the same team, the same way of doing stuff. But you're going on a, you're getting into a new growth wave, into a new summit, but you're too heavy to climb. And this is one of the big challenges, whether it's 14 years, four years, or for myself, I was 10 years. And, um, and, and actually going back down to base camp to have a look and say, what do I know more? What do I need to take with me? What do I need to leave behind? You know, I know for myself with my traits, I tend to hold on. I tend to collaborate. How do you let go? And um, it's the beginning of the journey that I take people on, which is, you know, this false redundancy, of course. And to go back down to the bottom again, to look up and say, how do you turn this passion that you had into a purpose and values that other people can follow? Um, And that's very important because people see it as, oh, it's just all a bit. It's not. It's power. And that space between the founder and the company is the power to get onto that summit, that next growth wave. That's what's so critical, but so hard. Because you've brought up this baby, right? You loved it when nobody else did. And now you're being asked to let it go. It's, it's super hard. Uh, and this is where purpose and values come in and how you build the trust and unite a team and the way you work towards a shared vision. Um, and that's where fun begins again. You know, that, that's fair, you know, so a long answer to the word redundancy. Well, I think it's absolutely genius. And there's something that you said in there that, I have enjoyed my mis because I do consider it a mistake that I didn't focus enough on. Like it was purpose that brought me to my first business. It was frustration and and just sick of the growth and burnout that caused me to sell my business probably too soon. My first one, which was the, my real estate business, and I get to use that as uh, kind of a reminder for Jimlin whenever she has those moments. But one of the things you said that I think is very genius that a lot of entrepreneurs don't do enough is. Go back to base camp with the wisdom, knowledge, scars, and knocks that they have survived and look up the mountain to go and and take inventory of those things. A couple of things. One, look what you've survived. And that's one of the things that I do tell that I have enjoyed being able to help Jimlin whenever she's in the weeds and she's in the, she's banging through the forest, getting the, the thorns and, and everything else, you know, trying to just make her way through the bush. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're not in COVID anymore. You're not starting this out again, trying to figure out, oh my gosh, I've got to line up all these vim- vendors and li- and how do I pay for this inventory? You don't have to do that anymore. You know all of that. So whatever obstacle comes, and the good news is for most entrepreneurs, this is what I had to learn myself through multiple businesses that, first of all, we know that our worst fears rarely come to pass, but some of them have come close and we've overcome them. So I love what you said about being able to take that and go get go back. Now, how does, is that where the process starts? Because you also touched on, I think, one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur or just any good savvy business person is figuring out what I should be doing, what I should eliminate, what I should delegate, what I should automate. You know, those are, those are three things that every business owner is always trying to figure out. And the hardest one, I think, 
and probably the 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 last one to tackle would I would think would be that delegate one because I know this is one of the things that Jimlin struggles with. And again, looking for your coaching that I can't wait to have her yeah. listen to this podcast episode. For, I must say, sweetheart, of all the episodes, you got to listen to this one is the fear I see with Jimlin. I've had it. I, I suffer with it right now with my media company. When you go to delegate, they just won't care as much as I will. They just won't take care of this. They don't know as much. How do you coach an entrepreneur through that, Julie? Well, you know. The sad news is no one will ever care because no one will ever think like you. And this is the starting point. And I used to, you know, when I grew, I was the worst culprit for holding on. You know, uh, it, even in my workshop, I'm very open and honest. I said, you know, people even asked me, you know, what the brand of tea bags should be. You know, talk about holding on, you know, in a, in a 75 million uh, euro business, you know, what do you, you know, sure. without you realizing it. And, um, you know, one of the very big learnings that I had is people will never think the same. They'll never care the same because everybody's values and the way that we look upon life is very different. So if you, when people say, Judy, you need to delegate more, you can never solve your current problem on the same level as you created it. So for example, if you're doing more and more things, the key the, the key, so the answer to the problem is not to delegate those things because, it, unfortunately, it just never happens that way. Um, you know, I always I liken it to if you're doing a job of sharpening the pencil and you want to delegate, you're sharpening thousands a day, and you say, "It's okay, I'll get ten people to come in and sharpen the pencil." They'll never sharpen it like you will. So the key will be to inspire people to unite on. Why are we here? Why do we need those 1,000 pencils? But it's more than the Simon Sinek why. It's, it's that whole integral of why is it important that that pencil is sharpened in that way to that customer? What's that vision of change that we're trying to make by having thousands of pencils sharpened in that way? It's a stupid, simple example, but what we try and do is try and find people that will sharpen pencils like us. And in the way, the capability of sharpening it. And the whole beautiful thing about the business, as it probably is um, with Hot Tots for sure, is that if you unite on people like you, not exactly the, the shared values that your company has, that's where you can start to get the power of uniting. And yes, of course, you're going to delegate sharpening of pencils, but perhaps somebody takes it and they work out the way to sharpen it better for your customer in the way and have more impact. So I think for me, my greatest learning was how do I take who I am, translate it into the company to leave space? What are those organizational values that other people can attach themselves to? Because people follow great ideas, not great people. I, I understand you need a great person to inspire it for sure. Ultimately, they want to be a part of a vision that's still yet to be totally created. And that's where they can go, oh, we could do this, or we can actually impact that. And that's where life gets exciting for everybody. And in order to do that, the founder has to go, I have to let go. But I also can't do that at the same time as I need to reconnect everybody to one common goal. And that's where purpose and values comes in and when you go down the mountain you come back up the mountain with something that everybody can collect can collect to and that's the key for sure i love Don't delegate that i think that's fantastic and i love the fact that you you referenced simon senate because whenever i was researching what you were your background that obviously that's a that's a normal uh individual that's in, in the same space that's kind of takes a different take, but I like what you said because it takes it more to a micro level. It, it, I think it, yeah. it it goes down into the DNA of the actual organization. I remember, so I was one of the, I was one of the very first hires after Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank were no longer running the Home Depot. They brought in Bob Nardelli mm -hmm. and I worked for him, actually his number two guy, Dennis Donovan, who was, and they were brought in because Ken Langone and the board essentially said, 
okay, we've had two consecutive quarters of revenue decline, never happened in Home Depot's history. And the reason why I bring this up is because, as you know, Home Depot is a storied company for culture, almost a cult-like culture. I mean, it was, that's why it, they were able to do things that made no sense no guardrails. Bernie Marcus might go up to a to a cashier in a store in Spokane, Washington, and just go, you know what? I'm going to give you a $5 raise. You did such a good job today. Well, not exactly how you can run a Fortune 500 company for, for, for the duration. And one of the things I saw that happened, and I think this is why Nardelli takes such a bad, has such a bad rep during from his time there, is that he thought if I just bring in harsh systems and controls and and just and just these these store managers, of which some had started pushing carts in the parking lot, worked their way up to running a fifty-five million dollar business, which was the average revenue of a of a Home Depot box, as they called it. And now you're going to have some some guy come in and say, "No, here's how you do it now," and there it just kind of just squelched the culture. That it seems to me like that's kind of the mindset of just delegate, get a system, and then get somebody that does that we don't need any passion. That it doesn't matter if you love the company, hate the company, just systematize it. But it sounds to me like you're saying, no, that's missing the point. Am I? Am I? Am I? Am I getting you? There, there's definitely, and it's the balance always. I mean, it's not like fifty people coming into work and doing exactly what they want towards what they perceive as the goal. But it is exactly that. It's the balance between what do we believe, how do we come together, and how do we translate that in, the, in our work to ensure that we change that life of the customer every single time. And so it's never one thing. It's that purpose, that value. It's about embedding it in how we work and what we do. Um, and there's a very interesting article on that. It wasn't the story of the Home Depot. He did... They, someone came in and did a lot of work on the organizational purpose and values afterwards. And actually, I use that as an example of how you can use the power of purpose. I actually do use that for entrepreneurs. That's why I'm quite familiar with the story. And now because it's a very, very good one. But it is about how do you unite people at every level? And it's not just purpose and values. It's getting people to connect to it. And then how do we translate it? And I always put it down to one question. Uh, right at the beginning, you can imagine I get very busy entrepreneurs and startup, right? So it's that, you know, you want to give them. Entrepreneurs need quite a lot of um, instant gratification. So you want to give them those quick, quick wins. I say, okay, start with this. Go, what do you celebrate? And they often go, their reply would be things like uh, likes or sales, new clients. And I say, that's all very good and well. And then we talk to them about purpose and values. And I say, if you celebrated the change that you were making towards that customer, we always start gratification with a small couple of examples and then getting them to build up into what's that vision of change? Therefore, what are you celebrating? And try for a couple of months, just celebrating that with your team, celebrating the change that you're making. Make one statement. And see how it uprises because, you know, when I was growing the business, we used to celebrate record weeks and because we were a new startup and that was thrilling and that was, we were gaining good market share. But then what happened when it wasn't a record week? You know, what happens when it wasn't? And marketing, sorry, would always claim it. I'm sorry, Rose, if she ever listens, you know, it was always that fun. Oh, marketing, it's our adverts and product. We'd like, no, it's our product. And, you know, it used to be the standing joke. But the key was everybody couldn't join in. And so we created, instead of doing record weeks, we created a joint purpose that was shared by 1,700 people, which was the likelihood for customers to return in two years, because that was beyond the moment. And that year we celebrated, we embedded it. We, you know, we didn't talk about sales. The finance person did, of course, and me. It wasn't in the forefront. And what we found was everybody rose to that challenge. And that's my true belief that purpose and values embedded in a company and led from the top, not just on the, you know, the people that we bring it in when it occasionally suits us, from the top to everything that we do and what we say truly matters. It was the first year that we made grounds in market leadership. Uh, okay. It's done to many things, but that was a key driver for sure. 
I think that's I think that's ex- excellent. And also, have you noticed that it um, when you when you get that buy in? So right now we're living through an age where everyone's personal fulfillment seems to take precedence over everything. It's almost and I don't know how some of the larger organizations. Uh, I just I can't imagine trying to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company at this in in this day and age. Now some of them are pulling it off swimmingly, so I'm not saying that, but it just it just seems like it would be so challenging because uh, there that we were living to an age of so much. You know, my per my personal purpose it, it matters more than this company. And you're you're supposed to you're supposed to understand that first and foremost. But if you can get something like what you're talking about in those early stages and get enough buy-in, have you found that that kind of will will mesh well with my my personal um, fulfillment purpose can be better accentuated if I'm also do, I mean, you know, following the, the the company's purpose and I, I have the buy-in. I mean, does it do, is this a way to tackle what I gotta believe a lot of managers are facing right now? It's like, hey. Mm. We just we need to make money. You know, we have a purpose here and we love that, but we do at the end of the day, we got to keep the lights on. And so I'm I'm down with your cause, but remember, I got to pull you in here to buy into our our collective cause too. Um is it is it helping kind of deal with some of those challenges that we're facing these days? Yeah. I think during COVID, as you know, you, you, you know, we all had a chance to reflect on ourselves about what was important and what wasn't. And um that value-based recruitment. Um, is an important part now of surrounding yourself by the people that you need. Um, but values are, you know, what do we believe and what does a company believe? Um, we, you know, we're looking to sort of like magnet link onto that. Of course, it doesn't have to be exactly the same, but a way to inspire whether it's the right company for someone to join or you're the right company to recruit people from is how clear is your vision and purpose? and and how much are you living it? Because, you know, you can't now get away with sort of saying, yes, we believe in this and we do this and this is what we believe. And then someone comes in and says, uh, I haven't got anywhere to attach myself to. I can't see that. So I think the honesty and uh, that, that purpose led the values approach is incredibly key. And I think that's where companies are succeeding, you know, in terms of, how do we live and breathe what we say we are? Because it's people's personal choice whether they stay there or not. But you can't say one thing and be another. You have to be honest about who you are and what you represent. And it has to be through the organization. And, you know, there are many ways of achieving that for sure. Now, the guys I work with aren't these massive, great big companies. But if you ever want to see a beautiful value purpose-led um, organization at work, go into any startup, you know, because that's all they own. And, and I'm sure you've seen it uh, with your wife's company for sure is that's at its purity where nothing matters. It's pure equality. And of course, it's got its disadvantages as well. But that replication of when you are linking on values because you've got no money, you've only got a future that excites people. How brilliant would be to capture that and put it into organizations as they grow. And that's what I mean by taking it with you on each growth wave and ensuring that those values follow the founder or if the founder sells on is embedded so that you don't lose that. You don't lose the nature, what makes you so different. And um, of course, I come from a company, a family company that was built on partnership across the world. So you, you always have to live by purpose and values because uh, it's owned by, you know, three and a half thousand people around the world. So it has to be aligned. You have to have it embedded in what you do. And those are the companies I think are really alive today. Um, are, you know, those companies that find that way to use their values to stay different, to stay one step ahead, because eventually as you're Fantastic business in Texas is founding. It is becoming your competitive advantage. I mean, you are sought out. It's it what is what makes you different. But you've got to put the work in. You can't just have them on a wall. And I know people don't do that, but you've you've got to live it. Say, so how does that mean? If we say that we are um, X, Y, and Z, how do we put X, Y, and Z into our company? Like I always say to um, our entrepreneur, one of our values is. Um, 
will always um, put the founder first. And when they come to me and they go, what will I do? What shall I do? Our way of working is always say, well, what, what works to you? And we support that way. So it, it's all about living what you say that you believe. And I think that if there's ever a good time for this moment, uh, it's a good time to bring that to life for sure. Well, and, you know, I guess you've got to be pretty busy these days because now more than ever, people are looking for entrepreneurial ventures. It seems like and it, there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur, to start that. And it's gone beyond just the side hustle. No, the, it, you, I mean, it's truly an option. And I think even over here in the States, what I'm seeing, like my daughters both just graduated from, from university uh, within the last two years. Mm. And if I were starting over, I don't know that I would be at, you know, I'm a first generation college graduate. So it was, it was different for me. I had a different perspective. I was like, girls, you're going to school and wherever you can get in, I will find a way to get you there. And by God's grace, they did. They went to the schools they wanted to go to. They had a great experience. But now I think I would be almost like, okay, yes, that's an option. But, but also understand this, a trade school or learning a trade, an apprenticeship, and then getting into entrepreneurship. I don't think it's ever been more available to as many people as it is now. So I think what you're doing is incredibly important because I don't think, Julie, there's ever been a time where or you tell me this in your experience. I see entrepreneur, with the exception of Babson here in the States and, and a couple others that have just pretty noted entrepreneurial studies. Entrepreneurship is so hard to teach. And it's one of those things that it sounds sexy. It sounds so Great Gary, guys like Gary Vaynerchuk make it sound just like the most amazing thing that it, it is within anybody that's willing to work their tail off grass. But it's it's really hard to learn in an inorganic fashion. Would you agree with that? And just kind of what is your take on that? Just teaching entrepreneurship versus it being innate and then accentuating it. Yeah, I mean, I'm smiling as you say it because um, you know. Uh, I sort of started to, to, to work or not to work with, sorry, to talk more to Erasmus Rotterdam University. And, you know, we were having this conversation about uh, women entrepreneurs, where the, the challenges are. And I said, is it idea first or skill first? Is it and it's chicken and egg. And I think it can be both. Um, I think that what we should be doing is taking these amazing ideas and giving those entrepreneurs that haven't been through the system, the education system, the skills they need to take it onto the next wave so we don't lose them because their passion is enough to get it going. Um, but that's what I'm doing is capturing those guys as they're coming onto that next wave and saying, that's brilliant. You've had the idea. Now let's let me give you the entrepreneurial career. And I don't mean career as we see it as in very nice. It's like, these are the things that you need to do. Look at it like this. How do you become that leader creating space? So it's the sort of backward way of doing it. But I had the conversation, exactly the same question with the guys from Erasmus. And they are starting their uh, course for, for women entrepreneurs. And I said, what does the course look like? Because I'm with you. But I come from the sort of school of not hard knocks, but, you know, my family does as well. They learned the profession and then learned how they, when they got along, uh, you know, how to move it forward. I had a slightly easier route in there because I went to um, business school for a couple of years, but I also learned on the job as well. So it's a really difficult one. And I think when we're trying to answer that really difficult question, never ask it at the same level, it's always my little mantra, is what makes a great entrepreneur? And I think if you need all of these elements, the great idea, the operational system, as long as you've got them working uh, together, does it matter which one comes first? As long as you're aware of what you need. I, I just don't want universities to make you too neat that you haven't got room for that mad creative side to you give with it. Nailed it. You nailed it. And that's one of the things. So I started out as an entrepreneur and due to my own insecurities and my need for affirmation, I went to business school and I love SMU. I went to the Cox School of Business. It's a great education. But here's what happened to me, Julie. I almost became 
you suffer from the curse of knowledge when you go to business school a lot of times. I, I, that was me. I because because you're you're made so keenly aware of everything that could go wrong, and you're being taught by incredibly bright and brilliant and and accomplished people on this is the way to do it. This is the way not to do it. And I, I remember going, but very contrary to whenever I did my first pro forma, which I literally went to Microsoft templates and just filled out. And it was so bad. It was a five-year pro forma. I, I was just describing this the other day. I had the interest rate, the way the interest was compounded on the building I was buying for my first business, completely inaccurate, closed the deal, ended up having, I don't remember how many extra thousands of dollars a month on my burn rate. It was so wrong, but you just, I just did it. Now, if I had been to business school first and looked at my real estate business I was acquiring, I probably never would have done it. And so it's, and, and it's weird, but, but then you've got the other aspect of uh, one of the things that um, at least my cohort was popular for is a lot of engineers trying to get into business. They wanted to be entrepreneurs and they just had to remove that stigma of I'm only an engineering professional. I do know business. So they would go get credentialed by getting an MBA. And so I, I, I learned from that and it was so bizarre, Julie, whenever I show up, because I just, again, I'm just a bumpkin from Sulphur Springs, Texas, a town of 14,500. I adore my hometown, but I'm not the greatest thing it ever produced, I assure you. And so I'm sitting there amongst all these. Oh, for yourself. Well, I, you know, I just, I'm always trying to, to trying to improve upon where we started. Okay. And, uh, and I was, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm going, this is crazy. Most of these people, the, the ones that were entrepreneurs, right? Some of them were just trying to advance through their their corporate careers or whatever. But a lot of them, they were there to try to figure out how to become what I already was. I was there trying to validate myself to say that I'm as smart as them. And what I learned from the whole experience was there's something missing here. And you know how business school programs work. You have your capstone hypothetical entrepreneurial adventure. Some of them go on to be Build-A-Bear or or Tom's Shoes or something like that. But most of them are just kind of a, a thought experiment. And can you write a marketing plan? Can you yeah. put together a financial statement? And I don't know. I think that there needs to be some way. And I think that what you're doing, I think really helps a lot is bringing some practical real life. It, it may not always make sense, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it if you think that's you've right. got the right idea. And so maybe that's the deal. And it kind of when you said that, I'm kind of going on a thought tangent here. So, so mm, that's very interesting. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, whenever you said the chicken or the egg versus the idea or the skill, I love that question because one of the questions that we always asked in business school was if you're doing a pitch, say, say for it to a VC, if you've got an A team, but a B idea, is that better than a, a uh, B idea and an A team? Or, or, or I think I just said the same thing. But the bottom line yeah. is, if the idea is really, really good, but the team is not, they've got all the skills, then it's not going to overcome a bad idea. But if the idea is really, really good and you've got an A team behind it, or even it's a B idea, but an A team. So I guess that's more in favor of the skill. But I guess it's trying to really close that delta as closely as possible, right, between idea and skill. And if you can figure out a way to, in a in a metric form, say, this is a pretty doggone good idea and this is a good team, then you you kind of have some yeah. success. And I don't know how you do that. That's why smart people wow. like <laughs> Well, I think it's always, you know, it's so beautiful because it is the balance. And I think it's always going to be a chicken and an egg situation. and. You know, that's why partnerships with founders are so good. And I come obviously from partnership family, you know, mother, father, husband, and wife, and they very much balanced each other with how they thought. They both were very big visionaries, sorry, are visionaries. They're still very active. Um, but they had no form of building those businesses. Somehow they supported each other on the competencies that it would take to make that idea come alive. And, and I think that that partnership is what you're trying to create, whether you're a founder and a team or a joint founder. But I think the most point is you get to a stage where you cannot take it forward yourself, whether it's with a team or a joint founder. And I think that's where that balance comes in. I think on the waves, 
you can all have those great ideas. But I think you have to have the ability to understand where the problem is. And in today's world, perhaps the way that we look at problems needs a bigger starting point to begin with. Um, you know, because some of the ways that we think about problems, they're not big enough. You know, the challenge isn't big enough. So it's a really difficult one. It's chicken and egg. But I come from a founder where the, uh, sorry, a family where, where the idea was first. And I know that they've got more stories to tell than if they'd done it in a neat way. And, you know, so, I think I think you really you touched on something there. It's, I think about that. OK, because if the idea is good enough, see, I didn't start with a good idea. I started with I want to be an entrepreneur. So I'm going to go buy a business. I bought a real estate business. That's just no nothing creative, nothing about that. Just I it was for me, it was the life I wanted first. I didn't have a good idea. Um, but I got to believe now I'm working on some other ventures right now where the idea is really good. And it's funny, I'm doing uh, an advisory engagement right now for a company where I work directly with the CEO, the chief revenue officer, and another CEO of one of the other uh, business entities. And it's so fun because right now we're in that very startup mindset where all those titles I just mentioned to you really don't matter. It's all about, we've got this great idea of delivery and everybody's excited about it. It's so fun. But, and yeah. so at, that let, that lends, that leads me to believe that if you've got not only a good idea, because what you think is a great idea or what I think is a great idea, we may not have come to an agreement on, mm. but if we can get enough people to realize, wow, this, the light bulb is shining bright, then, then almost, you know, as long as the passion is there, you can put the right people on the bus to, to execute the idea. Tell me more about that with your family business. Come, what I don't know that what was the business and who all was involved family wise, because I'm always intrigued by this, Julie. I see a lot of generational businesses in particular uh, that you had one generation that, I mean, just boom, just came from nothing. And then the subsequent generations, very mediocre. When here in Tyler, we have an incredible uh, family business story. It's Brookshire's Grocery Company. I think they're in their fifth or sixth generation now. Very successful. And I'm always impressed with what must have happened, you know, five generations ago that kept this legacy moving forward. What was your business and how did you all work as a family like that? Well, I think number one is that even though obviously it was created by parents, I'm second generation, um, Mary and Doug were very, very quick to put it into partnership. So it turned from being a family business into a business with family values. And there is a big, big difference because, and rightfully so. So they set up the business with, uh, in partnership. So they didn't own the stores. Um, and they said, how can we service the customers optical and hearing in optical and hearing to the best that we can be in every community we go into? Well, if that's the case, the owner needs to be in the store, right? So how do we? So Basically, it worked on a joint venture partnership, a franchise, where there was a collaborative relationship, which ensured that the service got to the person that mattered, which was the customer. And so that on that basis, it's always sort of grown as a partnership business. So where the family fit in was actually, this is the family. The family is the partnership and the values are the people who are at the front end work in the stores and in the support offices. And this was from a very, very early stage. And, you know, the job of the family is now the maintenance, not the maintenance, because that makes it sound so dull. It's like, you know, it's the, it's, it's the brand side, but far off. It's, it's just making sure that it lives its values but we don't have anything to do necessarily with the operational side what well, my brother does and uh, i worked obviously uh, over in europe that was the key was if you're going to get involved as a family you're here as the person that's making it happen for the customer this isn't about you it's not your bank it's not this was our dream you're more than welcome to come and join but you know it's it's from there and that came from joint values which means that you could take on the people that were going to grow the business that was needed. And that came from the need of a growing brand, not from the family. And that was very critical. They took that decision wisely very, very early. 
I think that's one of the things that has caused over here in the States, Chick-fil-A to grow the way it does. I don't know if you know their model, but it's pretty, it's pretty genius. They basically make their operators more of a partner where they split the net with them. They never own it. It's not a franchise. It is more of a JV type situation. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. I know there was a, uh, there's a cat, a chain of catfish restaurants when I was growing up, they're still around. I think David Beard's catfish King. And I think that the model there was they would have the store open for 10 years in which the corporation uh, participated in the profits. And then I think after 10 years, the manager would take ownership of the unit. So therefore they have a reason to, to build it. And I think that's much different than just paying people well. I mean, you want to pay people well, but you know, almost all of the research that I've looked at in, in recent years in particular is, and in the book drive, I think, um, Daniel mm. drives his home a lot. Oh but, yeah. That's a good book. I like that. Well, it, 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 it's so contrary to what most managers, even today in 2023 think yeah. like, you just pay them better. If you just give them, no, it's more about that autonomy, that purpose and that mastery, let them figure out how to be good at it, give them some independence and then, and, and then give them, let feed a purpose and they're not going to come to you begging for more money all the time, nah. and, but it's so hard for a manager to get that. And I think what you're saying with what, what your family set up, it kind of combined all of that. And mm. I don't, that's that, that's that, that, that's at its highest, I think, level getting that proverbial buy-in to the business to where they've got skin in the game and they're, they're wanting to carry it forward for a purpose greater than I think, themselves. I think now, you know, when you, when you look at uh, innovation, and we look at some of the, you know, there's some great innovative companies out there, you know, the ones that the Uber, the Airbnb and the ideas. But when you're actually sitting down and I know working with some of the entrepreneurs that I'm working with on some of the innovative ideas, uh, especially around sustainability, which is obviously huge in Europe, um, you know, we're having conversations, not just about the idea, but we're moving the business model at the same pace. Because today, can you just have a great idea? You have to have a great people model that supports that, you know, where you're not sort of, you know, there's a small technical situation, but where you have to have it, you have to have that balance. That's what I mean by purpose and values moving forward. What's the vision? Who are the people? What's the way you're going to work? They've got to be equal because any misalignment will mean that a once innovative idea becomes yesterday's news. Uh, and that's the big challenge. And um, you may have this great idea, but in today's fast moving world, it will be there. But if you've got the model to match it and you haven't been greedy from day one and you've shared and you've brought the right people up with you and you've got an innovative model, like you said, the catfish or, you know, for us at Specsavers where all the profitabilities go to the store partners, et cetera, then then that is the innovation today, surely. I mean, that is what's going to keep you above everybody else. You know, that, that, that's going to be different. I think another thing that a big problem that it tackles that probably in both mine and your lifetime, we're seeing at a higher level now is this whole anti-capitalist mindset that a lot of people are taking on. And I, but I don't think it's anti, I honestly think maybe yeah. this is me being kind of um, optimistic. I don't think it's necessarily, even if they say down with capitalism, I don't think that's what they mean. I think they mean down with unconstrained greed and win at all costs. I think if you can somehow balance what you're talking about, you bring people into the business and they start to share in the in the rewards of the business in such a way that that allow and they see that, OK, if we get this right, this will allow us to do better things for the environment, for our family, for for for. For those in our in our in our close knit community, then it's not, then it's I think that kind of is a as a balance, and, and it's not, and and they and also the bottom line is people are always going to feel better whenever they feel like not just a seat at the table to to yell and beat their fists when when they have something, but when they really feel like hey I've got an idea that I think we can make this better, and I and I and I not only that, not will I just make more money for my idea, but I think it'll be heard. And that would be really fun to be able to have my fingerprints on, even if it's this little infinitesimal piece of the business. And I think that kind of would help salve this whole anti-capitalist movement. I think one of the things that 
that's really good that I'm in. So I love your model. And I want to talk about that for a moment. I don't want to let you go with just talk about how you, you enter an engagement and how long you stay with them and how you help these entrepreneurs. But I see a real challenge for private equity these days. Mm. If, how in the world, and, and I'm a past PE guy, I participate in private equity. I'm not saying that I, I have a lot of friends in the space. All of them have their, all of them wear their, their Ferragamo loafers, their jeans and their Patagonia vests. And I don't judge them. I'm, I'm down with the PE crowd. Okay. But whenever you're, a lot of them are going and they're gobbling up that culture that has existed for say 20 or 30 years. That was like your family business. They figured out a way to make it sustainable. And they're literally saying, unless they're Berkshire Hathaway, which really isn't PE, but you know, they're more long-term they're saying, okay, we're going to take that culture and we're going to use it up for about five years and then move it along. I don't know how you maintain this, some of the long-term things that we're talking about here. Do you, I mean, and do you have those conversations with at different terms with your entrepreneurs? Like, Hey, when the PE guys come, you got a great idea. You got to get business. <laughs> what are you going to do? I mean, I do think it, it it is a challenge because especially with some of the companies that I work with and, and not to put a whole box of people in a box, but women entrepreneurs will generally have ideas that benefit community and well-being and welfare. I'm not saying that, you know, their counterparts don't, but it's, it's on the whole, they're looking to make communities better, which quite often means they've got a longer runway. And, and that's a really, really super challenge because if you've got a longer runway, you know, when you're looking towards the right funds, you've got to choose rightly. You've got to choose very, very carefully. This is a big challenge because you're so grateful for when people go, oh, I quite like that business. You're like, oh my gosh, getting on it quick away. So, so what I sort of try and work saying, I understand funding is very important. Let us look at all the different options you have to do it because, you know, I wrote a blog once which said, and, you know, onboarding your investor is your most expensive employee because if you are moving like at this pace and this pace, it's not always right. There has to be adjustment. And you've got somebody who needs to go, oh, but I need you to move like that. Um, you've got to be, ask yourself a very important question. Is that something I want to do? And is it something I can do? And, and I know it sounds a big question where we're so sometimes so desperate for the right funds to come in. But also you have to weigh up, you know, things like, I'll give you this money, but I want you to stay on for two years. You've got to understand, is that something you want to do to be a guest in someone else's company? There's a lot of choices and decisions that need to be made with that. And that's the problem with a longer runway. So I do actually have big conversations with, um, with the entrepreneurs about it and to understand how to get the investment um, and, and how to break that investment down. Because, you know, quite often people don't need that huge investment right away with the companies I work with. How do you break it down? How do you put it in? How do you give away what you need to do and where the funds come from? So there is a very, very big finance conversation that we have. I try to make it broad. It doesn't mean I want to slow them down, but I want to give them the other questions they have to answer. Um, you know, just go into it being aware that it's more than just receiving the money in your account. It could mean a change in culture. It's so appropriate. It's such an appropriate conversation. It's one of the things that uh, I've, I've advised. Same thing whenever I have small business owners that I've, I've helped them understand. They're like, well, should we go? We can go get, I, I have a, a, a doctor friend or friend that they said they would put in money. I said, let me tell you something. That's great. But here's the problem. And they say, I don't want debt. I hate banks. I hate banks. I said, well, here's the difference. I get it. I hate debt as well. I'm no, I'm no friend of bankers, but here's the thing. Eventually the bank goes away. An investor does not. And unless it's a JV sub situation, like we talked about earlier, where they are partners in the business, if it's just an investor, it's just a calculated, am I getting that, that double digit return on my, my capital? And am I getting my pref back? And then once I have it, I'm going to stick around. I'm probably going to cause you, unless you can, through your legal documents and your charter, keep them very, 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 very at bay, which almost never happens if it's a significant uh, investment. 
I always try to tell people understand something. And, and it was, it came from a mentor one time. I was about to take on an investor on a deal I was doing. And this, uh, this, that my mentor, he said, all right, he said, you've already got one wife. Why do you want another? Said, because that's what you're about with this deal. That's what you're about to get. He said, so and he said, if everything's perfect with the way things are going right now, and you just love, you just love it. And there's never any problems. Understand this is what you're about to sign on for Because especially the, when it's a small business where everybody's voice, not only is heard, but it bounces off the walls. And, and, and so I think it's incredibly appropriate that you have those conversations. Um, it's, it's interesting too, thinking about the, uh, here in Texas, there's some great examples. Talk about female with the long-term horizon versus male shorter term horizon. Not that there aren't long, long sustaining male owned business, but like we have Mary Kay Ash in Dallas, that Mary Kay cosmetics was a phenomenal success story. My wife and I were just talking about these last weekend, Abby holiday, a real estate, uh, you know, empire that she, that it was, of course, Mary, I mean, uh, Abby holiday just passed away a number of years ago at the ripe old age of, I think a hundred and mm -hmm. wow. in her entire lifetime, privately held company wasn't really, you're doing a lot of acquisitions, but was in it definitely for the long haul. So immediately some of the bigger names in the big female owned companies, I think about they just, it was definitely for the long haul. So there's definitely something to that. Now tell me about your practice, how you enter an organization. What's this, how do people find you? And, and here, I'm going to ask you straight up, Julie, you've got an incredible experience. You're very bright. How do you convince that startup that's already watching every dollar that they can, that it's actually, they can afford you? Because I got to believe you don't work cheap. You're too smart for it. Oh, bless you. Um, well, actually, uh, um, I, I have a sort of blended learning uh, site. So that's how I, my vision in life is to any female entrepreneur who wants to grow their business should have accessibility to it. And this comes into the point that not everyone's been to university and college, et cetera, et cetera. So how do I make it an, into a college equivalent? Um, that's how we've kept the cost down to ensure that we can get as many people involved. And, you know, that growth starts with the entrepreneur, that vision. And that's why often we're in the long term. So we've designed it like that. The entrepreneurs, very, very busy, can sign up and do it in their own time critical, but also come together and get advice when they need it. And that's what I mean by we follow their route and support them because obviously it's their journey. Um, and that's how we keep the cost down. It's how we try and do it for as many people as possible. Uh, because you know, once you get your purpose, your vision, and yourself connected to it, you will be so surprised on that leap forward. And we try and give as much advice as we can on our website so that more and more people can get involved and jump in really. Well, I love it. I'm looking at it right now. And one of the things kind of to that question I just asked, because a lot of, you know, a lot of consultants like me, I, I do similar work to what you're doing, except it's more of like a generation. Like if you're going from first generation to second generation, well, some of that, you know, to try to yeah. continue on. I don't, I haven't done this in, in a while, but you say maintain sole ownership. A lot of folks like that are in our position will come in and say, I'll, I want advisory shares. And, and so I love that you, you make a point on your site that they maintain their ownership. And then this is the really cool one. And we touched on it at the very beginning. And again, it hits so close to home with Jimlin and Hot Tots and what she has built. And you keep joy while growing purpose. You, you keep it joyful you make it, it it is something that resounds and then i love this too that the now i want you to touch on this a little bit the restructure for a faster way forward that's one of the bullet points on the site that you guys do what is what does that mean to restructure for a faster way forward yeah that's very much geared towards um how you build a structure it's all about alignment and i think there's three key capabilities uh, in those early stages, as you get onto that next growth wave, that are very important to align to where you're at. That's your organizational structure, how you've created your value, and how you take decisions. I mean, there's many, many capabilities, but we say that those three will give you 80% of the journey. So that's what we try and align very quickly. Who, 
where are you at? They're very misaligned with that normally. They're running a company that's fast moving on an organizational structure that should be informing or survival. So, you know, they can't support it correctly. Decision making, getting the founder out, make them redundant, sharing decision making. And quite often, companies that come to us are over-engineered, uh, adding more and more and more and more value. So we take it back to the core and say, right, what, what are you really providing? And try to uh, build that golden thread back up. But the first thing we always do is the Powerball, which is purpose and values embedded. But those are the three capabilities. And there's not one way to grow a business, but with those three capabilities and those founders finding their alignment to where they're at, um, 80% of their journey onto that next wave is done every time. Those three things. Don't make it overcomplicated. Have I got the people I want to support where I'm at? Not where I want to be, where I'm at now, because they'll take you there. Am I taking all the decisions? Should I be taking all the decisions still? And uh, am I over-engineered? Which was always, entrepreneurs love shiny new things. Uh, you know, it's my ops manager that goes, no, Julie, no shiny new things. You have to sell the current ones. That's I was, I was very, very key. I was working with a startup uh, a number of years ago in Atlanta, and we called it the Idea Ferry. The Idea Ferry had to keep contained because, it, oh, man, the Idea oh, Ferry. Man. We fly around and, and yes, and I just had a conversation. It's actually the, the episode that I, I launched this morning with a fellow entrepreneur friend of mine. And we talked about how, because we talked about before we got on, you know, my whole deal is self-improvement, improve all ways and all ways is my, is the mantra of the show. But sometimes we can just over-optimize. It's like, you know, just chill out. Sometimes you don't have to optimize every freaking thing, you know, and and I, I tend to do that. And as entrepreneurs, especially when you're like in this day and age where that is such a, a hype, where we're optimizing our minds, we're optimizing our health, we're optimizing our efficiency and our productivity. And I have to step back and just tell myself that chill, it doesn't. And that's one of the things where Jimlin and I balance each other very well, mm -hmm. because she is willing to just, if I have to take down a wall one brick at a time, I'm just, just get the wall down so we can move to the next phase. Whereas I'm more like, no, should we even be going around that wall? Is that a Chesterson's wall? What it would, what it, you know? And so it's like, no, just so she really, she, yeah, it's like, well, maybe that wall's there for a reason, you know? So, um, anyway, so tell me how, okay. So is the delivery of wise minds and it's, and just so the, the listener knows it's W Y, uh, S E M I N D S, right? That's right. Yeah. Because um, wise with an I, I was told by a very young person that it made me sound old and I was going to be wise to them. Uh, so I went, oh, right, uh, I better listen to you because you're probably going to be my customers. Uh, and they went, no, it makes you old. So I go, what? I'll spell it with a Y then. Is that more dynamic? And I said it sarcastically and they went, I do. I like it. I like it. So what's the delivery message? Is it a hybrid? Is it videos and some exercises like for the entrepreneur? And how is it like a track? How's it work? And by the way, I want to mention to you yep. real quick, Julie, this is very cool because Jimlin did not go to college again. And it's one of the things yeah. I think is so impressive about her that she did go to the school of hard knocks. She has mm. everything she has learned. She has learned by trial and error and, and hard work. And if you can't tell from this podcast, I'm pretty doggone proud of her. So yeah, that's good. And she should be. It sounds amazing. She is. So so what's the delivery method of, of Wise Minds? Um, well, what we do is we try and put it all online. Um, but we have sort of the workshop that goes with it. So you can uh, work through it yourself. It's all online. Um, there's quite a lot of free stuff as well. We do a free introductory offer. And one of the key things when you're actually thinking about, am I ready to grow? is we do a free evaluation, bespoke evaluation for you, and you fill in the questions. And I worked during COVID with a behavioral scientist and a financial consultant and me. Uh, and we sort of sat in our own individual attics, of course. And we said, can we create something that tells entrepreneurs or helps entrepreneurs decide how ready they are to grow their businesses or where that problem is? And so we worked for about six months to come up with these questions in the Powerball, which gives you an indication of how ready you are to grow. So even if you want to get going and have a start at that, how aligned are you with your purpose and values? And 
how are you sitting at camp four on Mount Everest? <laughs> you know, are you too heavy to climb or is it going to be that little bit too in, uh, deflated in order to have that strength forward? It's always a great starting point. It's completely free. And then if you like what you hear, you can get involved and sign up. We have an uh, introductory offer, um, it's like a starting course. It's only eighty nine fifty, um, and it gives you the whole prospect that you need all online. There's a workshop thrown in, and then you can go on and do the other parts. But it's all accessible. You know, more women entrepreneurs growing their business and getting out of that camp for. And obviously male entrepreneurs as well. I'm being gender oriented there, but... It does suit the way that we look at growing businesses. I think it's fantastic, and I will definitely have all the uh, the links to the site and everything in the uh, in the show notes. And besides that, where else can people keep up with you and find you and uh, and learn more from you? Well, um, as I said, my Wise Mind site, uh, which keeps me youthful because it's spelt with a Y. Apparently, it's got loads of stuff on there. Um, I write a blog um, and articles I think will be useful for people to read, ideas, etc. cetera. Um, and um, obviously the, the LinkedIn and um, Instagram mostly, but uh, more LinkedIn. Fantastic. Julie, this was so much fun. Uh, if it was half as much fun for you as it was for me. It really was. All right, good. Well, it was a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Folks, she's Julie. I'm Jason and continue to improve always and always. I'm Jason and we are out. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out.